Uh, I want to welcome you this morning to Grace. My name is Rick, and I am one of the pastors here. If you came to see the other bearded guy, he will be back next week. So Pastor Mike and his wife Kelly have been on vacation the last two weeks, and so I've had the privilege of being here with you. Uh, I have the opportunity to serve as Grace's executive pastor. So I came to Orlando in 2010, started a church, uh, started attending Grace on Sunday mornings, and then uh, started a campus in 2011. And then the uh, leadership team asked me to step into this role in 2013. So I've been serving as the executive pastor since then. Uh, Executive pastor people are always like, what does that mean? Um, It means that I put feet to Pastor Mike's vision and lead and execute vision across all of our campuses, lead our staff. And so it looks a little different every week, uh, but I also have the opportunity to preach every once in a while. And so the good news is if you like me preaching, I get to preach every once in a while. Um, And if you don't like me preaching, I only preach every once in a while. So either way, you win. So uh, we're here today. So I have the opportunity to close out the book of Romans. And so if you've been around Grace for a while, you know that we have been working through Romans for the last year. We've had, I think, 40-something sermons in the book of Romans. And so we are wrapping up this series called How to Be Strong, which has been a six-week series, which closes out the book. Next week, Pastor Mike's going to be launching a new sermon series, will be our summer series. We'll be going through the book of 1 John. So if you want to get a head start, it's like five chapters. You can read the whole thing this week and and, uh, see where we're going. So that will be taking place next week. But really, as I was preparing for and thinking about the message this week and just this concept, how to be strong, sort of thinking through, like, what does strength really mean? Like, what, what do we say when we say, well, we want to be people who are known for being strong? Uh, Pastor Mike says all the time, the strong take care of the weak, but what does it mean to be strong? Uh, and I think in a classical sense, uh, strength is the ability to withstand or push against a force that is exerted upon you. And so if you are a strong person, you are able to withstand forces that are exerted upon you. You know, you think about weightlifting as maybe the most simplest explanation or example of strength, and you are actually pushing a force against and away from you. You know, if you pull it off the bar and you can't push it away, it just crushes you. But if you can push against it, you can at least withstand it. And if you're strong enough, you can push it away from you. And so I think as we think about our faith, there will always be things in our lives, in our culture, in our communities that will seek to erode and undermine and come against our faith. And I think so often in the church, we have thought about those being external things, and sometimes we feel like we need to kind of circle the wagons and protect ourselves from the culture or protect ourselves from from things outside that would undermine our faith. But I think more often than not, the things that actually erode and undermine our faith are internal things. They are doubts and fears and whisperings that we begin to believe, lies that work their way into our heart, and slowly we're not certain that we believe the things we claim to believe. And so when Paul tells us today um, that he wants us to be established in something, he's really talking about how we as Christians can stand strong in our faith and we can have a faith that is able to withstand things that would come against it, things that would seek to undermine it, things that would seek to erode it. And so I want us to look in uh, Romans 16 at this passage. And as we look at it, I want you to think about this concept that what we believe will always shape how we live. All right, what we believe will always shape how we live. And so as we go through this text, I want you to think about what are the beliefs that you have, maybe both that you've named and those that you have not named, that are actually shaping the way that you live. Because the reality is, when you act, you are always acting on a belief. There's something at the core that is driving your action. And often we can identify those things, but sometimes we don't. And so there are times when you act in a certain way, and then you say, that's not really who I was. Well, no, that's actually really who you are. Like, like the unfiltered part of you just broke out and, and made that comment or said that thing or did that thing. 
Um, and so we have beliefs that drive our action because our beliefs always shape how we live. And so Paul begins in Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 17. We'll read there through the end of the uh, chapter. If you are here last week, you remember Paul was kind of concluding the letter, and he started talking and, and kind of commending people, um, both in the church at Rome and people he was sending to the church at Rome. And so this is almost like he was wrapping the letter up last week, and he's like, oh, a few more thoughts that I want to just get down before I actually conclude. And so verse 17, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now, in verse 21, last week he was greeting people in Rome. Now he's going to send greetings from this entourage of people that are with him as he writes the letter. So he says, Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, and so classically as they would write these letters, Paul was actually speaking the letter, and Tertius was writing this letter for him. So Tertius says, I, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus, sends you their greetings. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. Amen. And then he concludes the letter, which is a normal way to conclude letters in this time, with a benediction or a praise to God for certain things. And they actually, in his benediction, is going to draw attention to things that he wants you to remember from the letter. And so he says, To him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And that is the end of the book of Romans. Now, as I read this text this week, and it immediately jumps into this concept of divisions, I thought, you know, this is a timely message for us, because I think as I have talked to people over the last couple of years, people continually tell me, I feel like we're more fragmented and fractured and divided than we've ever been as a people. Now, if you read history, you understand that there's never been a time where people didn't feel fragmented, fractured, and divided. It's just right now, we get to hear about every single small, minor, fraction, division, group of people, and we're being called to not just hear about them, but to take a side on all of these issues. And so you continually feel like, I have to choose, am I on this side or that side? Do I believe this or do I believe that? If I see something wrong, I need to say something about it. I need to correct those people. I need to bring them into the truth. And, and, and I want you to hear that as we think about this, if we bring all of those divisions and fractures and, and fragmentation into the church, the church no longer becomes a place of peace, but a place of fighting. And so Paul is calling us to say, hey, there is a superior truth that I want your faith rooted in, and that superior truth will be the unifying factor of the church. And if you believe this superior truth, these secondary issues can remain secondary issues. And it doesn't mean that you can never talk about them. It doesn't mean that you can never discuss them. But it means in the church of Christ, there is no place for loveless, graceless conversations because we have a superior truth that unites our hearts, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we approach our friends or our enemies, we can do so with love and grace because there's a superior truth that will trump every other truth and allow us to find unity and peace. And so I want you to see in this benediction, Paul says, verse 25, um, to him, talking about God, to him who is able to do what? To establish you 
in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ. And so Paul is calling for the church to be established in knowledge, established in truth. Why? Because what we believe will always shape how we live. And so Paul is calling us to be rooted in information and knowledge because that information and knowledge will work its way out into your life. And so we say, well, what is this gospel message about Jesus that Paul has proclaimed? Well, at the core, here's what it is. The gospel message that Paul proclaims is this. You are not enough. You're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not funny enough. You're not brave enough. You're not courageous enough. You're not righteous enough. You and of yourself are not enough. And that is very counterintuitive to what the culture says. The culture says you are enough. In fact, I was at Target yesterday. There's a sign you can buy that says you're enough, you're enough, you're enough, you're enough, you're enough, you're enough. You're like 42 times, you're enough, just in case you need to remind yourself. But I would say if you read that over, like at the end of that, you're like, yeah, but I'm not enough. I love on social media, people will post things about how they're struggling and always like the first or second comment, somebody's like, you got this girl, you're enough. And I'm like, literally girl's not enough. That's what she just said. Like, I'm not enough. Like there's something wrong and I'm actually asking for help But our culture would be like, no, 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 just press in. More of you is what you need. And Paul says, more of you is not what you need. You are bringing the problem, not the solution. You're not enough. However, you are loved. You are loved in your brokenness. You are loved in your sin. You are loved just as you are. And that is good news. right? I want you to hear that that is actually a better news, a better news to hear you're broken and not enough, but loved than to be told potentially you could be loved if you would improve yourself. Now, just think if God was like, hey, every year we'll do an evaluation and I will let you know whether you're good enough to be loved or not. Imagine the marriage like that. I love you as long as you never make a, make a mistake. I love you as long as you never hurt me. I love you as long as you always say the right things. Imagine being raised by those parents or raising kids in that way. Oh, no, no, I don't love you today because you're not enough. And so God's Gospel, the message that Paul proclaims is, hey, you are not enough, but you are loved, you're invited, and you're accepted to come and receive from Christ. Now, I have three kids. Two of them are too old to talk about from the stage, but one of them, she's still young enough I can get away with it. Um, She'll never know unless you tell her, so don't, all right? Um, But Lily is my six-year-old, and Lily is the child that you cannot pull one over on no matter what. She will not be controlled in any way at all if you try to control her. It does not go well. Uh, my other kids want to snuggle and hug. She wants to kick and wrestle, all right? Because she wants to be superior. She wants to be the dominant one. This is just how we, we live. Um, I'm, prior to having Lily, I would have parents say, oh, I just can't get my kid to do this. And I'm like, well, you should be a better parent, right? And then the Lord gave me Lily. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you just can't get kids to do things, right? They just do what they want. You give Lily options if you would like to have peace in the house. And then if she chooses option C, which wasn't on the table, you roll with it. All right, that's just how she goes. So Lily is my child that literally has a fever. And I'm like, Lily, you have a fever. And she's like, I do not have a fever. And I'm like, well, you feel really hot. I do not have a fever. My eyeballs are hot. And I was like, okay, like no virus will control me. I am in control of myself. You know, she's in kindergarten and she comes home and she's like, Alice told me on the playground that I'm not allowed to play with her. And I said, oh, that probably hurt your feelings. And she goes, no, it didn't. And I said, no? And I said, she said, no. I said, well, she's like, I just looked at Alice and said, what makes you think I want to play with you? And then I just walked off and got on the swing by myself, right? Like, like I'm not going to give Alice control of me. I'm going to remain in control. And so as the end of the year wrapped up, we were going through her folder of 
papers and grades, and most of them just had like smiley faces and stickers at the top, but we found one that had an X over one of 10 numbers and a 90 written at the top. And then in similarly colored ink, the 90 was kind of scribbled out, and in shaky little handwriting, it said 100. <laughs> and so I said, well, Lily, what is this? And she goes, oh, that's my quiz that I had. And I said, okay, well, why, you got a 90 on it? She goes, no, I got 100 on it, see, 100. And I'm like, but there's an X down here. What does that mean? And she goes, that's where my teacher made a mistake. <laughs> okay, right? And I, we laughed about this. But as I thought about it, I thought, man, this is kind of what I do with God. Like, I get something wrong. And instead of just being like, yeah, I was wrong, I try to cover it up. I try to hide it. Why? Because at my core, sometimes, I don't believe God's going to accept me with my failures. I don't believe God's going to accept me if I get a mistake. But the beautiful part of the gospel is like, you can have a 90 or a 60 or a zero, and God is not waiting for you to get the 100 to love you. God's like, no, I love you with all of those parts of you that you want to keep hidden, with all of those parts of you that you would be mortified if we talked about today, with all of those parts of you that you hope nobody ever sees, with those parts of you that occasionally just break out and then you're embarrassed. Like God sees all of that, and he knows all of that, and he loves you in spite of that. And so Paul says, root yourself, establish yourself in this truth that you are loved exactly as you are. And in that love, you will find freedom to transform and become something new. It is in the love of Christ that you find the ability to grow and change and transform, not in the do better, be better, you're not enough. You're loved. And so you press into that. And so Paul is calling us to say, establish yourself in that truth. And then everything else begins to fall into its proper place in your life. And so going back to verse 17, Paul says to us, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions, right? To be on guard against things in your life that would cause divisions, that would put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings that you have learned. How many of you have that family member that comes to Thanksgiving and then like lobs the bomb into the middle of the table and like, let's talk about that. If you're not laughing, you probably are that person. Um, And that's okay, but there's these people. And so Paul says, hey, be on guard against those who are constantly trying to cause division, who are constantly trying to pull your heart away and put obstacles in your way. And what does he say? He says, keep away from them. Use the Facebook mute button. Like, go for it, right? Why? Because there are these people that will enter your life, and as they do, they will pull your heart, and they will pull your affections away from Christ. They will make you get so caught up and so involved in these secondary issues that those become so important to you that suddenly you find they are taking over your thoughts, they're taking over your emotion, they're taking over your affection. And you need to know that you live in a world full of teaching. You are being taught all of the time. You are learning all of the time. And so as you engage with this world, you are constantly going through life and you should be on watch for those who are going to cause division. But the problem is most often we are unaware that we're being taught. Because people don't say, hey, I'm here, I'm a teacher, I'm here to teach you. But the reality is, as we navigate life, we are continually being taught. We call it things like marketing. Friends and their opinions. Therapy. Social media feeds. News cycles. Conspiracy theories. Political views, all of these things that are being put out. And in doing so, they're instructing and they're teaching us. And the question is not, are those good or bad? You can have friends with opinions and perspectives. You can go to therapy. You can do all of these things. You can read and, and study. And, and, but the question is, 
are they causing division in your heart? Are they pulling you away from Christ? Because there is an ongoing, never-ending competition for your affection, for your attention, for your love, for your heart. And if you're not careful, you will give those things to the wrong teachers, and then what will come out of your life will be things that you don't want, because why? What you believe will always shape how you live. And so Paul is saying, be on guard, keep away from these things that would cause you to pull away from Christ. He goes on in verse 19 to say, For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. I don't know about you, but I never want to be called naive. I like to think of myself as wise, smart, intelligent, astute, not naive. But the reality is there are times when if I'm not careful, I allow my heart to be deceived, and I am naive. Because I don't realize what I'm actually consuming is pulling my heart away from Christ. I'll say, if I would like to be discontent, I just get on Instagram for like an hour. Everyone is on vacation. Everybody's house is better than mine. Everybody's food is better than mine. Everybody's body is better than mine. Like everybody is better, right? And that's just what this does. And so if I am on there long, like I'm just very discontent. I'm like, I'm in my 1,500-square-foot ranch eating a bologna sandwich, all right? This is miserable. And what I've done is I've given my heart to something else, and it's causing discontent in me. And so we have to continually allow ourselves to be on guard so that we are not deceived, right? What does deception mean? Deception means that there are people out there that will tell you lies, right? And lies always have consequences. Lies always have consequences. If you believe a lie, it will have a consequence. And so if you believe a lie, here's what will happen. If you believe a lie, you will act on a lie. When you believe lies, you act on lies. When you act on lies, what do you do? You bring destruction into your life and into the life of other people, Every person that falls away from Christ, every person that goes into sin has believed a lie. And in believing that lie, they think they're going to get something better. But in doing so, they bring destruction into their life. This happens over and over and over and over again in our culture and in our lives. You have been hurt by people who believed a lie, acted on that lie, and you were left in the wake. We're on the end of three mass shootings. All different reasons, different motives, but at the core, there was a person who believed a lie They acted upon a lie, and in doing so, they brought destruction into their lives and into the lives of other people. What we believe will ultimately shape how we live. And so Paul says, be on guard against those that would deceive you, that would cause you to have things that would supplant Christ, supplant Christ as primary, take over your heart, give your affection to, and suddenly you are now going after those instead of chasing and pursuing Christ. Paul goes on in verse 19 to say, Everyone has heard about your obedience. I love this. So the church at Rome, Paul's giving them these warnings, but he says, hey, you have a reputation for being obedient to Christ. Like, may this be the reputation of Grace Church in Orlando, that we are people who are obedient to Christ, that follow Christ, that pursue Christ. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And so Paul says, I want you to be these two things. Like, as Christians, we should be people full of wisdom and full of innocence. Wise about what is evil, innocent about what is good. Wise about what God has called us to be. Wise about the work that we do. Wise about the goodness that we bring with us when we go. Wise about how we bring the kingdom of God into the world. Because often when we believe a lie, here's what we think. We think, if I do this thing, I will usher in the kingdom of God in this way. 
culture, there are people that are deceived and saying, hey, if I do these things, this will bring the kingdom of God. This will bring utopia. This will make things better for us. And God says the way the kingdom of God comes forth into the world is by believing the gospel message, proclaiming the gospel message. Here's how we bring the kingdom of God in. Jesus says, wherever Christ has rule and reign, the kingdom of God is there. And so as you submit your heart to Christ and you submit to the rule and reign of Christ, Christ reigns in your heart and the kingdom of God rests in your heart. As you submit as a family to God in his reign, the kingdom of God is now in your midst, in your family. As you go to work and you submit and surrender the rule of reign to Christ there, you you bring the kingdom of God with you. And I think so many people think, well, if I could vote the kingdom of God in and I can elect the kingdom of God in and I can follow these rules and I can do these things, this will ultimately get us the kingdom of God. And guys, God loves Democrats and Republicans and all kinds of people. I love in Revelation, here's what it says. There are people from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue gathered at the throne of God. What that tells us is that there are communists at the throne of God. There are socialists at the throne of God. There are every race at the throne of God. There's people from every nation at the throne of God. Like Jesus was, like grew up and was, came to being, you know, to present his ministry under the rule of an emperor who claimed to be God. And the kingdom of God was at work, redeeming people, saving people, calling them away. Jesus never even spoke about the government. Jesus said, hey, let the rule and reign of Christ be in your heart and take him with you. Proclaim the good news. Proclaim the gospel. And so we have to be people who understand that we bring the kingdom of God with us by submitting to Christ and inviting other people into the story of God. And what this means is we have to have wisdom about what is good. Look what wisdom is. Wisdom does not merely mean having superior knowledge. How many of you have ever met that person that always thinks they have superior knowledge? They want to argue with you, correct you, reprimand you, tell you why you're wrong? How many of you are those people that think, I need to fix everyone? They're all dumb. I think a lot of Christians stop right here. We have superior knowledge, and everyone needs to know about our knowledge. This is the guy with the bull hanger on Orange Avenue at midnight screaming at people as they come out of the club. I have superior knowledge, and my way of life is better, and I'm going to tell you about it. And I'm not saying that no one has ever come to faith because of the man with the bullhorn, but I've never met someone that has come to faith because of the bullhorn. And I've had lots of conversations with people who are like, all of you Christians are like that guy. And I'm like, there's one in Orlando, come on. But I think in many ways, we like to go around with our bullhorn just yelling about our superior knowledge. But actually, wisdom means knowing how to understand knowledge, how to interpret information, and how to communicate with others. You're not going to yell people into the kingdom of God. You're not going to argue people into the kingdom of God. You're not going to scream people into the kingdom of God. You're not going to Facebook debate them into the kingdom of God. You love people into the kingdom of God. You demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, mercy, self-control. You tell them the more beautiful story of how Christ will reign in their life and how all of the desires of their hearts are actually met in Jesus not in the things that they're chasing, not in the broken things that have hurt them in the past, but that God is going to heal them through the gospel message. And so we have to be people who with wisdom interact with people and invite them into the kingdom of God, invite them into the story of God. And to do that, we have to be people who are rooted in the truth of the gospel message that Paul has presented that, hey, you're not enough, but you're loved. You're not enough, but there's a place for you at the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God. And so we become these people who then live out of this wisdom and invite people into the story through this wisdom. And then Paul gives us a promise in verse 20, and I love it. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now, look at this. He says, God will crush Satan. It's a beautiful promise. But I want you to see how he does it. Under your feet. So Paul tells the church at Rome, hey, God is at work in your midst and he will soon crush Satan, but he's going to crush Satan under your feet. We say at grace a lot, God shows up when we show up. God is not sitting on a throne in heaven, pulling dials and, you know, pulling levers and twisting dials and making all of these things happen. He has unleashed his church to bring the kingdom of God into the world and to be his agents acting on his behalf. And so the kingdom of God comes when the people of God believe the gospel, commit themselves to the gospel, live out the gospel, invite people into the gospel. And in doing so, Satan is pushed back. The kingdom of God advances and the schemes of Satan are thwarted. And so Paul says, hey, church, God will crush Satan, but he's going to do it through you. And what a beautiful promise that God does not just work on our behalf, but God works on our behalf and works in us to then work through us so that we can become the people of God who propel the kingdom of God in his world. And he invites us to be a part of this story. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. You know, as I read this passage this week and really began to think about Rome in uh, in its totality, Paul continually throughout this book has appealed to the book of Genesis. Um, kind of as the the basis for what he's doing. In in Romans chapter 1, he talks about Genesis. In Romans 5, he talks about Genesis. So there's all of these moments throughout the book of Romans where Paul is going back to Genesis, uh, and he's telling some of the story of creation and how God roots things about the gospel in the story of creation. And and as I read this text, I thought, man, there are so many parallels between Romans 16 and, and Genesis 2 and 3. And so if you don't know the story of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2 is how God creates the world and his intentions for the world. And so Genesis 1, it just goes, God creates this group of things, and it was good. God creates this group of things, and it is good. God creates this group of things, and it is good. And so at the end of every moment of creation, God is saying, this is good, this is blessed, this is the way it should be, until he gets down to the creation of man and woman, and he says, and it is very good. These humans, these people, this man, this woman, are created in my image, in my likeness. They're at peace with me. They're at peace with each other. And he places them in this garden, which is a place of peace in Hebrews, shalom, which doesn't just mean the lack of fighting. It means everything exactly as it should be. Wholeness, wellness, goodness, and so God's intention for us is that we would be at peace with each other and at peace with him. And then when he places Adam in this garden, here's what he says in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. He says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man and said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of what? Of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so Paul says to us, hey, we want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Adam and Eve did not remain innocent about what was evil. They moved towards this tree. They moved towards the evil. And instead of being innocent of what is evil, they wanted to experience evil. And I think you and I, sometimes we are innocent about what is good. Like, oh, was I supposed to do that? I didn't realize that. Uh, And wise about what is evil. I need to experience that to know if it's bad or not. This is how my heart works sometimes, by the way. So, right, like like we, we, but instead God's saying, no, I want you to be wise about what is good. Be knowledgeable about 
knowledgeable about what is good, know how to interact with what is good, know how to do what is good, know how to bring forth good in this world, and innocent about what is evil. And so what we see here in Genesis is that Adam and Eve did not remain wise about the good and innocent about the evil. And so Paul is calling us to do that, to be people that are wise about the good, innocent about the evil. And then in Genesis chapter 3, uh, as Genesis chapter 2 closes, it's amazing. It says, Adam and Eve are in the garden, they're naked and unashamed. All right? They are at peace with each other and at peace with God. Sounds like every marriage you've ever encountered, right? Peace with each other and peace with God. Shalom in our house all the time. There are no arguments. There are no fightings. There are no disagreements. We just are always in unity and walk with the Lord. Yeah, no, you're laughing because you're like, no, I don't know a marriage like that. I don't either, all right? Like, there are no marriages. There are no relationships like that. Why? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 2 ends that way. Genesis 3 picks up and it says, Satan, the serpent, enters the story. And he begins to whisper in the heart and mind of Eve, does God really love you? Does God really care for you? Does God really have your best interest at heart? Did God really say that you can't eat from this tree with this beautiful, gorgeous fruit on it? And he's like, yeah, God said we can't eat of it. We can't touch it. As soon as we do, we'll die. And then he whispers the lie that says, Eve, God is afraid that if you eat from it, you'll be like him. Now, the the terrible part of the story is that Adam and Eve were the only thing in all of creation that were already like God. They were the only thing that God created in his image, in his likeness. And he was trying to protect them, but Eve is now deceived. She's tricked, and she eats from this fruit. And she gives it to Adam, and he eats. And Romans 5 says that the entire world fractures in that moment, and sin enters the world, and now it's passed to all of us. And so there was this moment where Eve was not wise about what was evil. Wise about what was good, innocent about what was evil. The scriptures say, watch out for those things that would bring divisions, put obstacles in your way, that you would be deceived, and Eve is deceived. Adam was just an idiot, Eve was deceived, all right? It's just how the story goes. God shows up and says, Adam, did you eat? He's like, um, she gave me the food and I ate. It's her fault. And she says, the serpent tricked me. And what we expect then is God to fulfill the promise. If you eat, you die. But instead, God does something amazing. In Genesis 3.15, God himself preaches the very first gospel. And instead of saying, your sin has brought death, he says, your sin has brought destruction and death into the world, but I will redeem you. I will give you hope. I will make a way forward. And in Genesis 3.15, he says this, I will put enmity, hostility, hatred, He's talking to the serpent um, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And so he's telling Satan, there will always be hostility between the offspring of Eve, the children of Eve, which is every person that's ever lived, and Satan. He will crush your head. Eve's offspring will one day crush your head and you will strike his heel. What this means is that for our entire life, Satan is striking at us and striking at us and striking at us. But if we are in Christ, he doesn't win he strikes our heel and we crush his head. Because Christ ultimately is the offspring of Eve that will bring destruction to Satan and will crush the head of Satan. But he does it through his church. And so Paul, in this letter, as he's bringing this thing to a close, is saying, hey, ultimately the gospel is going to undo what was lost in the garden. The gospel is going to give you hope that things once lost can be restored that the intentions of God for you to live at peace with him and at peace with each other can be realized once again. And it's not going to come 
through anything apart from the gospel of Christ, apart from us as Christians submitting ourselves to the rule and reign of Jesus, trusting his gospel is to be primary and supreme, and then us putting everything else in our life in order behind that. In fact, there's a a theological thing that shows the four states of humanity. I want to share that with you. Augustine, the early church father, wrote about this, and then a guy named Thomas Boston in the 1600s more popularized it. But, but really, there's four states that we've lived in. The first is at creation. So only Adam and Eve were here. And in their moment of creation, they were able to sin. They were able to not sin. So they were making a moral choice about whether or not they were going to trust God or not trust God. And really, their sin is the most heinous of sin because they actually overcame their goodness to break their, their sin. And they fractured the world. Romans 5 says, Then death and sin was passed on to every single person. So at birth, we are born able to sin, unable to not sin. So every person that you know is born into the state where they are going to sin and they're unable to stop sinning. I don't know if you've ever been around toddlers. They're wonderful and terrible all in the same moment. You don't teach them to steal and hit and bite and scratch and lie, but they do all of those things. Why? Because in their heart, there's proclivity to like, I want to control myself. I want to be my own God. It doesn't mean that everybody always does everything as bad as they possibly could, but it means that every part of us as humans are touched by sin. And so we live out of the state of sinfulness, but then after salvation, when we meet Christ, we actually return to the state that Adam and Eve were in, that we are able to sin, we're able to not sin, that we as Christians are able to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, live out and choose whether we sin or not sin, whether we live to the glory of God or whether we live to the glory of self. And then finally, my favorite moment, I look forward to this day always, is in heaven. God will do something theologically called the glorification. It's the final stage of our salvation in which God shaves off that sinful nature and those pieces of you that, that long for sin, God actually just removes them, removes them from you. And in that moment, we become able to not sin and unable to sin. And our heart from that moment forward is now always and forever for the things of God. And it is the moment where God ultimately restores everything that was lost in the garden. And so as we close the book of Romans, I want you to know this is our prayer for you, that you would be people that would find yourselves rooted and established in the gospel of Christ that the promises of God, that you are loved despite your sin, that you are loved exactly as you are, that God in his goodness is inviting you to be a part of the story so you can root your heart in those truths so that the rest of your life can make sense, so that the rest of your life can be in its proper place and your affections are first and foremost for Jesus. Because church, he is for you and he is for his church. And he wants to see his kingdom advance in Orlando. And he's going to do that through us as we submit to him. So that is our hope for you. That is our prayer for you, that you would take a step in that direction this week. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your presence in our life. God, thank you for being a God who loves us as we are. God, the scriptures tell us that you are patient and kind and long-suffering and good. God, we know that we fail to live up to our own standards. We know that we fail fail to live up to your standards. But God, the gospel says that we have the righteousness of Jesus applied to us. And so God, let us be people that live out of his righteousness, that love you and your gospel first, 
who desire to see the kingdom of God advance as we submit ourselves to you. Father, we pray that we as a church would be people that transform the city of Orlando because you are at work in us and you have people here that you love and that you want to call into your kingdom and you'll do that as we live faithfully to you. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.